You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Moscow Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Hi, family. Uh, Before we get started this morning, I want to throw something at you just by way of information. Uh, Some of you guys know this, some of you don't. We have a Thursday night service uh, every week. And it's awesome. And um, Thursday night service is kind of fun because we don't have such time constraints. So you know how you get like, well, that's another sermon for another day. You know how you get that here? And you guys are like, oh, man. That's come. I know. That's how you do. That's my, that's my real life on the Palouse impression. Oh, man. Um, come to Thursday night service. There's, there aren't any sermons for another day there because there's We get time to do all that stuff. Now, here's the thing about that service. Um, We we don't do services to manage crowds. We do services as a way to help serve our our people that come here. And so um, it starts at 7 o'clock right now. And what we're finding is that families that have kids, they have a hard time coming at 7 because it gets out a little bit after 8. And then it winds up pushing up against bedtime. And then kids are wigged out. And and they, you, you know... If you have kids, you're like, yeah, I get that. I get that. When, when you get past a kid's bedtime, that's really hard. Um, and so what we're going to do starting in January, uh, we're going to move the service time back to 6.30. So that'll put it out about 7.30-ish. That'll give you time to get home, get your kids in bed at a reasonable hour, and then they can not have a complete come apart at school. The other thing that we're going to do that's actually really significant is um, we're going to start having dinner for our Thursday night service from 5 to 6. Now, here's the rules about that. You can't come and get a free meal and leave. A bunch of you guys are like, well, this will be part of my new fiscal plan for 2019. (laughs) No. No. If you come have dinner, come to church. But, I mean, here's the deal. You could be, like right now, you could be asleep. You could be in bed with nothing else to do right now and not even feel guilty about it. You'd be like, I feel bad. I'm in bed on Sunday morning. Oh, no, I don't. I went to church on Thursday. So uh, we want to offer that as a service to you. The great thing about I'm, I'm just telling you, if I wasn't paid to be here, Thursday night would be my service. Because you can come, you can get off work, come to church, and then have your whole weekend to do whatever you want. Uh, it's great. It's a great opportunity to do that. And so uh, we want to let you know about that coming up. That'll be um, cool. Uh, we are in week two of Advent, and this week we talk about peace. And the, what we know about this whole time of the year is that it's not very peaceful, and you're worried about either you're going to be uh, alone for the holidays and that doesn't feel very peaceful, or you got crazy family that you're going to get connected with, and that doesn't feel very peaceful. Every single one of us has got at least one crazy family member. Um, Some of us have a whole lot of crazy family members. And if you're sitting there going, my family doesn't have anybody crazy. (laughs) Every family has got one. (laughs) So there you are. Um, 
But it's one of those times of year that when we're supposed to be kind of most at peace, we find some of the hardest times finding peace. And so today, what we want to talk about is uh, this section of the story is about the shepherds. And um, so we're going to read that section of the story. And then we're going to jump to our temple um, metaphor that we're using through this series. And then we'll tie the two together. And I think what you'll find is that it'll be pretty um, pretty important to tie those two together. So we're going to begin in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Which, by the way, if you go, but wait a minute, that says in. Um, actually, it doesn't. That word there, the Greek word there is pendokion. It says guest room, and that's important. It's a big distinction. We'll, we'll briefly touch that this morning. Um, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. How many of the people are going to get great joy from this? All of them. Even the ones that you don't particularly care for. It's one of the crazy family members. <laughs> So glad to have you with us this morning. Because I, I was worried I was the one. Uh, today, the town of David, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into the heaven, uh, into the heaven, heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. So here's what's shaken down. Mary and Joseph have a baby. The shepherds come and they're the first ones to experience the Christ child, this presence of God in their life. It's, it's, it's not an irony that's lost. The, the shepherds are the first ones to see the lamb. What I want to do now is step out of the Christmas story. We'll come back to it. And I want to talk about this whole metaphor of the temple. And so last week we threw up this diagram. 
Let's throw it up here. This is the diagram that we looked at, and we talked about the steps last week, the teaching steps. And um, this week specifically, we're going to move into the next layer of that, which is the altar. So we're going to talk about this square right there that just turned green. That altar piece is going to be where we're going to focus today. Now, I want to show you a couple of photos to give you a, like a real-time visual of what this is going to look like. So let's look at photo number one. Um, this is the temple court. Out beyond it is the temple mount, and those colonnades in the background, that's called Solomon's Colonnade. That's all throughout the Bible. There's uh, mentions of Jesus walking there. There's mentions in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray. They see a lame man and they heal him. And then the lame man runs and finds them in Solomon's colonnade. And so that's where that's at. Also part of the area where they would have been buying and selling things there. Now this inner wall, this inner court is where we begin with our diagram. This is where any Jew of good standing, man, woman, child, doesn't matter. Any woman or man or child of good standing can be in that court. And in that court there, in that area, those steps, do you see those steps that are there? That's the steps that we were talking about last week. So let's go to the next photo. This is a close-up of that. Those steps there, that's where the rabbis would sit and teach and talk to the people. This is also where when uh, Mary and Joseph leave Jesus for three days in Jerusalem, and he's 12, because that's stellar parenting, that's... When they come back into Jerusalem and they look for him, that's where they find him. And it says that he's sitting with the rabbis and asking them questions. And everyone is marveling at his wisdom. Okay? So that's where that's happening. Now, let's look at the next photo. Beyond that, what you can see is the steps and the door. This is another model of the temple. Beyond that, you can see the square altar with the ramp coming up to the side where they would make sacrifices. This, this, not every Jew is welcome here. Only the dad and the, and the male children, they're the only ones that are allowed through that door. And what happens is they take their lamb, they come to the altar, the dad will place his hand on the head of the lamb, and then he will confess the sins of his family and transfer those sins onto the lamb. Then the lamb is taken up the ramp onto the altar and the priest sacrifices it there. Beyond that, what we see is the, the porch there as you go into the temple. This is where only the dad is allowed to go there. So we see this uh, narrowing of who's able to get, as we get closer to the presence of God, and, and yes, we acknowledge, the, the Jews would acknowledge that God's presence is everywhere, but God lives in the Holy of Holies. That's where like, his presence is there. Like, yes, it's everywhere, but it's there, right? Beyond the porch, only the priests could go into the holy place, and then beyond that into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest and only one day a year. And what we see is this narrowing, narrowing, narrowing of the access to the actual presence of God. Now, this is not God being elitist. That's not what God is doing. What he's saying is the reality of what it, what it takes to come into God's presence with a right heart, fewer and fewer people are actually going to be willing to do it. And, and I want you to think about it. Like, how did you prepare to come into the presence of God this morning? Like, as we came here to worship, beautiful worship, 
and really good uh, contrast with where the season is as we start to ramp up, right? I loved it. I loved it. How did you prepare yourself? Because how most people prepare themselves is like this. Oh my goodness, get out of bed for the third time. Oh, oh my hair. Oh, it's going to be terrible hair day. Oh, I'm just going to wear a hat. Oh, I can't even wear a hat to church. Oh, get in the car. Don't make me stop this car. Like, this is our preparation. And then we get out of the car. We're like, oh, brothers and sisters. How bless you, you know. That's how, we, that's how we prepare ourselves. Like, if that's your morning, don't be surprised when you come in here and you're like, Lord, I need, to, I need to experience you in my heart. And God's like, you're not ready. You're not. And, and the unfortunate thing is that we walk out of here having missed this really cool opportunity because God's here, but we didn't prepare ourselves. Like this idea of preparation matters. And so God sets up this process. So let's go to the diagram, back to the diagram. God sets up this process by which we rightly come into his presence. And that matters because the process doesn't change. So we begin with the steps of teaching. And we talked last week about how prophecy teaches us that God's promises are true. And because of that, we can have hope. Hope doesn't disappoint us. Even when our circumstances are crazy. The, the children of Israel, their circumstances were crazy when God showed up. Even in that, we know that God's promises are secure. Now, at the altar, we have this place of confession. And confession is a part of how we step into the presence of God. And we have a tendency to avoid this peace, one of two ways. Either we, we, we confess, but we don't really own what happens through confession, and so we carry the stuff that we just tried to transfer onto the, onto the head of the lamb, we carry it right back out with us. We're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bad, I messed up, but, but whatever, but I can't let it go, but I can't, but I'm, I'm horrible. I, I am, not that I did a bad thing, I am a bad thing. And that's a totally different posture. Or we swing to the other end of the pendulum where we try to convince the world so much that we have it all together that it's exhausting because we want people to feel like we have it figured out. Well, here's what the Bible says about that. And, and so just so that we understand that we're all kind of on the same playing field, this is out of 1 John. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Okay, so here's what he said so far. God is light. If we claim to have light but walk in darkness, we're lying. And here's how we know that we're walking in the light. We have fellowship with one another. That's what the word of God says. Right standing here always shows up here. It shows up in how we deal with one another. You can quote all the verses in the whole Bible. You can memorize the whole thing and quote it beginning to end flawlessly. But if you have an anger problem... It's something that's disconnected here. Or if you can have all the prayers of all of church history memorized and all the liturgy, and it's all good things, but if you can't keep your mouth in check, 
The problem is here. This is the reality of where we're at. And what what John is saying here is God is light. If we have his light in us, it's not just me saying that this is good. It shows up this way. Being in right standing with God always shows up in how we interact with one another. Let's keep reading. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, so for those of us that are over here trying to convince the world that we have it together, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Good news. You don't have to convince us that you're not a sinner. We already know that you are. I am, right? I know you are because I know we all are. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. Like if, if we claim that we haven't sinned, I don't have any sin problems. If we claim that that's true, then um, we make God out to be a liar. But what's really important here is that he says, if we confess our sins, then God's faithful and just to forgive them. Good news. How we choose to approach the attitude of confession really doesn't say anything about how we view our sin or how we view one another. It's about the kind of God that we believe meets us at the altar. What kind of God meets us in our place of confession? Is this a God who stands there with his arms crossed going, yeah, I was waiting for you to figure this out. You have blown it. Because that's how we treat it. Like this sullen, like, oh, I'm so, I'm off. Or do we meet a God there that has his arms open going, I'm so glad that you're here I'm not here to beat you up over your mistakes. I just want to make it right so that we can move on because we got stuff to do and it's going to be awesome. What kind of God meets you at your altar? So I want to talk a little bit about confession. What is it as a discipline? What, why should we practice confession? And, and then um, we'll pull back into the Christmas story I don't know, somewhere around one o'clock today. Uh, Augustine of Hippo. What a great name, Augustine of Hippo. For those of you that are with child, I submit to you, Augustine of Hippo. By the way, if it's a girl, don't call her of Hippo, ever. Don't do that. Parenting tip. Here's what he says about confession. The confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. And this is really important for us to see. The confession of evil works isn't me groveling, me feeling bad, me reinforcing the shame and the guilt of my sin. That's not what it is. The confession of evil works is the beginning of good works. Confession should always be step one into doing really awesome things. It should always be that. I want to look at another quote. This is from uh, Richard Foster. He wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. And and if you've really ever done any reading on spiritual disciplines, this book is the standard. Like Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, is the kind of the 
measuring rod that all other books on spiritual disciplines, at least in the modern era, are um, used against. So here's what he says. At the heart of God is a desire to give and to forgive. Do you believe that? At the heart of God is a desire to give and to forgive. Not to pull us back into rank. Not to get us to march straight up and fly right. That is not God's heart. God's heart is to give and to forgive. And that should shape how we approach confession. Because of this, he set into motion the entire redemptive process that culminated in the cross and was confirmed in the resurrection. The usual notion of what Jesus did on the cross runs something like this. People were so bad and so mean, and God was so angry with them that he could not forgive them unless somebody big enough took the rap for the whole lot of them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. Golgotha came as a result of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. Without the cross, the discipline of confession would only be psychologically therapeutic, but it's so much more. It involves an objective change in our relationship with God and a subjective change in us. It is a means of healing and transforming the inner spirit. So in your practice of confession, and I know that some of you uh, were kind of raised in the Catholic Church. You have a very Catholic view of confession, and that means you got to go sit with a priest and bless me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been me like three weeks since my last confession, and the list is long. Um, it's been like three minutes since my last confession, and the list is long. Um, that's kind of how it would be for me. Like, we have this very, listen, confession's not magic in the words you speak, but confession is powerful in the way that we re-engage the true nature of God. So for us to meet a God at the altar who isn't there to make us pay for our wrongdoing, but is there to forgive us and set us free from it. Like, at the heart of God's nature is this desire to give and forgive. If we don't get that right, then confession doesn't have its proper effect in our life. And the problem with that is that if we don't confess properly, then we don't get to move closer to the presence of God. It's the process, right? And I know that for many of us, like, wait a minute, but what about walking the path? And what about setting yourself apart? Yes, 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 yes. That's all coming. That's all, like, we still have three weeks of Advent left, but... This week, we want to focus on confession, and we want to own the responsibility to leave, not just confess our sin at the altar, but to leave it there, because too many of us don't. I want to read a passage, Psalm 32, and I think this is really significant in this discussion. Let's read, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now, let me, let's, before we move on past that, I want to set this stage. The rabbis have a field day with this because the question is asked, if a person does not have deceit in their heart, are they blessed by God? And the answer is yes. If a person doesn't have deceit in their heart, they can be blessed by God. Now the question becomes, but what about a person who has deceit in their heart? Can they be blessed by God? And the answer is yes. And their, their proof for that was Jacob. Jacob is full of deceit 
and yet God blesses him and uses him, which on a total side note, but this is awesome. At the end of John chapter one, Jesus sees Nathanael and he says, here's a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It's a total throwback to Psalm 32. And Jesus says, I saw you when you were sitting under a fig tree, which by the way, isn't about a fig tree. It's about a rabbi, but that's another sermon for another day or Thursday night. I'm just saying. Well, then what happens is uh, Nathaniel says, well, surely you're the son of God. And Jesus says, you call me the son of God because I said I saw you under a fig tree. You're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. Where's the vision of angels ascending and descending? Jacob. And so this conversation isn't Nathaniel and Jesus introducing themselves. It's them having a biblical conversation on Psalm 32. <laughs> Which has nothing to do with Christmas, but that's awesome. <laughs> I, gotta go, I gotta go take a nap now. Okay, let's read on. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will reach them will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Where do your songs come from? Or where does your deliverance come from? I gave away the punchline on that one. From your songs. God will give you songs of deliverance. Your deliverance comes from the songs you sing. <gasps> Maybe you should worship. I submit that. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule. Which, by the way, you never want to be compared to a mule in the Bible. That's never good. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous sing, all you who are upright in heart. God's desire isn't to beat you up over the mistakes you make, and we keep them. We don't want to talk about them, because, but when we hold them onto ourselves, it's like you're walking around with no energy. It's oppressive. When we are faithful to confess them, and God steps up and says, awesome, I love you. Now, here's a question. How in the world does that connect back to the Christmas story? Let me give it a whirl. I think that we, pre-confession, are much like the shepherds, and for that matter, Mary and Joseph, in their culture. We feel unworthy. We feel unable to be able to move forward. We feel like, yeah, it's a great idea, but I'm so stuck where I am that I can't even get past it. I just have to accept that I'm never going to be enough. The shepherds in the first century world 
there's a lot of debate about how low they were, but they were the low of the low. Some people will even say that they weren't even able to hold testimony in court. There's some debate about that. Um, Some people are absolutely adamant about it. Some people are going, ah, it's not substantiated enough. Regardless of whether or not they can hold testimony, the debate comes because we all agree that they are the low of the lows. And God comes to them and says, you, you get to see me first. You get to come into my presence first because God is in the business of making the unworthy worthy. Mary and Joseph, exactly the same. Like, why is there no room for them at the guest room? It's their family's house. Why is there no room for them in a guest room? Like, think about this in your own position. And we'll pull this apart further in a couple of weeks. But think about this in your own guest room. Your house, if, if you had 20 of your family members show up unannounced, let's say, and you're like, hi, come on in. They're like, hey, we were going to stay the night. Do you have room? What would you say? <laughs> yeah. Why? Why would you do that? You would hate it, but you would make room. Why? Because they're family. That's what you do with family. Somewhere along the way, Joseph's family is like, nah, nope, new. What is it? What's going on there? Well, I would submit this. Um, I have a 22-year-old daughter. And so let's say that one day she comes running into me and she says, Dad, I'm pregnant. But don't worry about it because it was God. I'd be like, okay, two things. Number one, I don't like that you call your boyfriend God. And number two, <laughs> number two, you tell God to come in the kitchen because he and I are going to have a conversation. <laughs> you feeling me? Like, you know this. They're not more and more ridiculous than we are. Like, the, this, there's no way they accept that this is illegitimate. And because of that, they're paying a price. And how do you feel about that? Put yourself in their position. Like, I ask this question a lot when I think about Zechariah and Elizabeth and I think about Mary and Joseph. Like, do you really want to be used by God? Because there is a cost to you. These people were being absolutely demonstrated to that they were unworthy and yet God goes, no, 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 no. I'm so glad you're here. Just like he does with you and me. We have a God coming in the couple of weeks. God's presence, God with us, Emmanuel, he's coming to earth. And we're gonna meet him in a cave. And I'm so stoked about that, but in order for us to be ready to be in his presence, confession is a part of the picture. Because at confession, God makes the unworthy worthy. And for you and I, that really matters. And because of that, we're gonna move towards the Lord's table. We take communion every week, and uh, communion is an opportunity for us to say back to God and to the people around us, look, I've heard, I've heard what was said today, and um, it challenges me, but I'm still in. This is the sign that we show everybody where our loyalties lie. 
If you're new with us, we have an open table. So anybody that's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake, but we want you to hold the elements till the end, and we'll take them all together. While they're passing that out, I want to work through a few talk points, a few key points. Maybe these are things you could discuss at your dinner table this week, uh, for sure in your home group this week. These are things that you can be discussing. Um, it's an opportunity for us to have some kind of key takeaways. The, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts on all different levels. So wherever God's hitting you with it, you, you, that's okay too. But these are a few things that we thought were important. Implication number one, it's one thing to learn about the love and acceptance and character and nature of God. It's another thing to step further into that process of letting the same God speak into your humanity. I know lots of people who call themselves Christians. And I'm, and I'm not saying, and they're not. I'm just people who would label themselves as Christians that would espouse the truths of God's love and his character and his nature. And, and they, would, they would espouse that from a head level. But when it comes to their own life, they can't get past the fact that they believe that they're bad. Listen, the problem with that is if you don't understand the effect of confession in your life, then the process of confession doesn't mean anything. If confession, you can say it all day long, but if it doesn't change you, what difference does it make? The invitation of confession is not to just know about the character of God. It's to actually become somebody who's changed by it. Our second implication, we confess our sinfulness because it cannot be ignored. We are sinners, and so we have to talk about it. Like, we don't get to just pretend like it doesn't exist. But we confess, we confess because it sets our hearts right, not because it's an opportunity for us to berate ourselves or talk ourselves down or anything like that. We confess because it sets our hearts right, makes us okay in, in, in here. Next implication. In confession, at the altar, we find that God is ready to accept an honest assessment of who we are in this moment. Like we don't have to be, have it all figured out, but right now, here's where I'm coming from, God, and here's where I have a problem. God and I had a pretty serious conversation even just this morning uh, as I was, I was driving to church this morning and, and not driving. I was praying with my eyes open, but um, it, was it was interesting. You know, uh, Isaiah 1 uh, has a really, is a really interesting chapter. If you ever want to see God kind of beating up on his people, read Isaiah chapter 1. Here's where he starts. He's like, your prayers, knock it off. I'm not even listening to your prayers anymore. And, and your sacrifices, I am so tired of the blood of bulls and goats. Like, would you quit? Quit even making sacrifices, and your festivals, your new moons, and your convocations, like, I don't even want you to celebrate anymore. Like, knock it off. You guys have got everything wrong. You're doing a bunch of religious activity, but you're not caring about the alien, the orphan, and the widow. You should pursue justice and mercy. And then this is what he says in, in verse 18. Come now. Let us settle the matter. In another version, it says, come, let us reason together. It's a more famous way to understand this verse. Let's settle the matter. So here's what God says. If, come, let's talk this out. Come here. Come, come here. Let's talk. This is like the great ender of all chick flick movies, right? Like if somebody would say, come here, let's talk this out, that would never, you would never have a chick flick. Um, seriously, like think about it. 
she likes him, he likes her, but we don't know, and there's this thing, and then and they're kind of, they get together, and then all of a sudden they have this moment of decision, and, and they don't know how each other feels, so the, now he's got to take the job promotion in, across the country. And she runs to the airport, and I love you, or he runs to the living room, you complete me, and say that a month ago. We have a 20-minute movie, and everything's better, because somebody communicated. Just come and let's talk this out. That's what God, God's like, for crying out loud, chick flicks are of the devil. Can I get a witness from my brothers in the house? Yeah, yeah. I had a guy actually come up to me one time and say to me, I submit to you the notebook. That doesn't fit your pattern. And I'm like, noted. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, go cougs. As though they were red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Here's what God's saying. Look, I can't stand what you're doing because you're doing all the actions without any heart. You're running through it in your head, but you're not doing it with any heart. Let's talk this out. And no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've blown it, if you'll just come and talk to me, we're good. You can have sins as red as scarlet. We'll be good. Just come talk to me. Last implication. It is God's acceptance and forgiveness that gives us peace in this Advent season. I want to go back to all the way back to the beginning where we started. Peace doesn't come from our ability to get our sin off of our chest. Peace comes from understanding the nature of the God that meets me at the altar. It's his acceptance and forgiveness that gives me peace. I love communion and I love taking it every week because this is this, this reminder to us that there is no place that God won't go to tell you how much he loves you. And because of this, we have peace. So if you find yourself in a position where you're not feeling peaceful, it's probably because somewhere along the way you lost sight of this. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And then the same way after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant, my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you meet us with open arms at the altar. And as we confess, you just keep saying, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you that you don't desire to beat us up, that you don't want us to feel shame or guilt over things. You just want us to, to know you and love you and live in your fullest potential. God, thank you for your relentless pursuit of us. In your name, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Also, if you enjoyed this message, make sure you check out the new podcast from our lead pastor, Aaron Couch, called A Better Conversation. Search for it on our website, iTunes, and the Google Play Store.